Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. At Worthy, we're in what feels like our first steps down the never-ending trail of impacting early childhood development. So this week, we are welcoming a couple of game changers a couple of playmakers, if you will, all the way from the United States who have come together to make a huge impact in connecting more children and their communities with nature. One of our next guests is the president and CEO of the Children and Nature Network that you've heard me speak so much about. She is an award-winning nature lover with decades of experience building relationships and establishing vision for improving equitable access to nature for people of all backgrounds and abilities. A big warm welcome to Sarah Milligan Toffler. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Our second guest today is a senior executive of the National League of Cities Institute of Youth Education and Families, originally pursuing a musical career and becoming a conductor for the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra. He is now conducting strategies for cities, towns, villages, children, youth, and families to thrive. Another warm welcome to Dr. Robert Blaine. It is a pleasure to be with you, Lucas. And we've got a split up today. We've got Atlanta for Sarah, and we've got DC for Dr. Blaine. So the world's combined. As we start with all guests, I might start with you, Sarah. Where did you play as a child? That's a great question. I grew up outside of just north of uh, Dayton, Ohio. In, uh, in, a, in a small town there where, um, you know, I walked to school, I rode my bike to school. Uh, we didn't have uh, computer games and things like that yet. I'm aging myself, but, uh, you know, there was the creek and there was the woods and uh, we were kind of kicked out of the house until, until the street lights came on. With and love. So, with love. And, um, you know, I will say that in many regards, it was, you know, it was kind of a dead end of a cul-de-sac. I mean, it wasn't special nature, but we, you know, our imaginations went wild out there and we, uh, you know, built houses and bicycle jumps and all kinds of things that, you know, my mother probably would, you know, not be happy to know, wouldn't have been happy <laughs> that I was out there doing that, but, you know, we figured stuff out and we had a lot of fun. So that's, that was my, that was my place as a kid. And it's no surprise you find yourself in the field you do now then. Yeah. I mean, that's right. That's right. And same question to you, Robert. Where did you play as a child? Well, it's funny. I, I've, I've learned a lot about Sarah that I didn't know. Um, and we grew up very similarly. Um, I grew up in suburbia just outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, all of my friends and I, we had, of course, games in the streets. The street was, uh, was our playground. We had, uh, you know, we played football and basketball and tennis and anything that you could play with a ball in the street we did. But I live one block from a community park and we had a, a really large park and, and all the things that we could do there with 
you know, baseball diamonds and uh, playing in the woods and creeks. And in the wintertime, it would snow and we'd go sledding and um, really wonderful um, opportunity to be able to engage with nature um, just outside of a major city. Yeah. So once again, you see those worlds collide, transitioning through, impacting, and there's no no surprise you teamed up with the Children Nature Network to create more of that in cities. For many of our, our listeners, they wouldn't be familiar with the National League of Cities or specifically within the Institute for Youth and Education. Can you just give a breakdown for our listeners, what you're doing with that? Yeah, the National League of Cities, we are, in a, we are actually the voice of uh, cities, towns, villages across the United States. Um, we have more than 2,400 member cities um, across the U.S., and the, the mission of our organization is to strengthen local leadership, influence U.S. federal policy, and drive innovative solutions. Now, within the National League of Cities, I lead an institute called the U Institute for Youth Education and Families, and essentially our institute is about, it's about opportunity. Um, we have center, we, we center values on racial equity, economic empowerment, and high quality education, uh, equal justice and strong health outcomes, irrespective of zip, zip code. It doesn't matter where you live. We believe that all people deserve opportunity. And we do that through essentially five verticals that we have within the Institute. So we have a, a vertical around early childhood success, education and expanded learning, um, promoting a culture of health, uh, youth and young adult connections, and economic opportunity and financial empowerment. Wow. I wish we had that. <laughs> <laughs> There's never been a more important time than right now with everything we've been facing with the, with the pandemic. And as we're all aware, it's the communities that are not already supported that are the most impacted. They're the first ones to be affected by job cuts. They're the first ones to be affected by school closures. Have you seen the change in urgency around impacting this? Is it, is it, has it created that shift? Has it brought like got that spotlight and shined it on this? And has it done anything? Absolutely. You know, the, the conversation that we have been saying is that the pandemic has changed the conversation from nice to necessary. For a long time, we've advocated for um, many of these initiatives. And um, in our conversation with local governments and with uh, the federal government, there, there's always been a, a conversation where people say, well, that's really nice if we could do those things. But now there's a realization that it's not just nice, but it's absolutely necessary that we live in a connected world and that we need to be able to give our children um, opportunities to engage, um, to learn, to play, to be in, engaged with nature. Um, all of that is, is absolutely necessary now. And, and in the space of a pandemic, um, being able to have outdoor spaces that are safe um, where children can engage is incredibly important. So, so you're exactly right. That that shift in the conversation is happening right now. And um, uh, with partners like Sarah, we're really excited about leveraging this work to the advantage of all communities across our country. I like that. Nice to necessary. I'm taking that. It's highlighted on my page right here. And to flip over to Sarah. Um, and combining with that relationship with the National League of Cities Youth Education and Families. Um, what's the role of the Children and Nature Network within this relationship and collaboration? Yeah, well, thank you. And, you know, I just, I will start by saying that uh, it's an incredible privilege to 
uh, had the opportunity to partner with an organization like the National League of Cities. And uh, that, that relationship started about seven years ago. And I will, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, I'll just say, you know, the role of the Children in Nature Network is to really advocate for what Robert just talked about, that, you know, all children have a right to the benefits of, uh, of a healthy natural world and be connected to that everywhere they live, learn, and play. And, you know, as was alluded to here, we know that too often a child's zip code, their race, their gender, their ability level impacts whether or not they have regular access to the outdoors. And we saw that with the pandemic. I mean, it just became glaringly obvious where those gaps were and so many other glaring gaps as well. But uh, for sure, this, this access to the outdoors and when everyone, Many people were looking for solace in the outdoors. Not every, it became obvious that not every community had that access. So that really, I mean, our mission has always been to increase equitable access to nature because we recognize to get that to that vision of all children, we really have to start with those kids that have the least access and really understand what those barriers look like in every community, which in some cases it, it's kind of the same, but it always plays out a little differently in every community. So it's really important to, to really think about, you know, what what does equitable access look like locally in a community? Yep. Um, and so that's, you know, we, you know, we do, you know, we work with with Robert and his team and others, you know, to really build the capacity of local leaders and communities to create that equitable access. Um, so just moving into this partnership, you know, seven years ago, um, we, we launched an initiative called Cities Connecting Children to Nature. And it was really kind of this, almost a theory, like, you know, if we engaged local leaders, municipal leaders in thinking about the natural infrastructure that exists in their communities as, as, uh, as a way to um, like, how can they ensure that every child in the community has that access? And, you know, could we get, um, you know, further, faster? Could we get deeper in these strategies in partnership? And I will just say, in 100 years, the Children and Nature Network could never develop a network like Robert and the National League of Cities has, you know, like to be able to have access to 2,400 municipal, you know, municipalities across this country to get this message out. Um, so it's, it, that has been incredible. And then I think, I hope that the Children and Nature Network has been able to bring some expertise, some technical knowledge, solutions that are proven, the research, all of those pieces to help inform municipal leaders in making better hopefully more holistic and integrated decisions. Um, so that, because we recognize that nature is one piece that needs to be around children to help them thrive. They do need access to, you know, economic opportunity, to good education, to all of those kinds of things. But nature is part of that, is part of that puzzle. So, you know, I'll just say we're seeing really creative solutions. I mean, Robert and I will talk more about this, but, you know, park library partnerships, greening of school grounds, um, greening early child care centers. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we are really seeing this urgency around outdoor learning. And, you know, it's a big moment for that because I think um, 
you know, in the United States, people maybe have heard about um, the American Rescue Act and, and, and federal stimulus dollars coming in. A lot of those dollars are being directed towards ventilation in schools, which, you know, certainly some schools maybe do need some new HVAC systems, but they can also use those dollars to put in outdoor classrooms, windows, doors, you know, that's ventilation too. Yeah. And so, um, you know, just huge opportunities right now um, in terms of working with local governments to really think about, you know, kind of not how do we get back to normal, but how do we get back to better? <laughs> yeah. Speaking to Richard Louvre is like, we're prompted to act before we forget normal. And that's really sat on my heart a lot and the urgency to, for these children that are being affected for the advocates to step in and not do the learning for them, not do the growing for them, just offer the infrastructure for them to grow. One of the things that intrigues me, and I love to look to the Children Nature Network because it kind of gives us this sneak peek into the future um, being in Australia and the work you are doing is like in front of us as I see it. So when it comes to that messaging and how you teamed up to deliver this messaging, to highlight nature as an integral part and to give that a bit of context, in Australia, it's very segmented between the cities and suburbs and schools. They're all their individual thing. How did you get the shift to move away from that academic focus, the infrastructure focus, um, also going into these um, the cities and talking to mayors about, hey, we actually need to prioritise nature and you are having an impact with this. And they have shifted and um, a number of cities have adopted the um the children's bill of rights like the right to play charters and things like that which are phenomenal so what was the messaging you took to them for them to see it as important you can both answer that by the way <laughs> yeah, I, i'll jump in first and, and i'll let sarah give the the details but you know one of the things that um uh we look at um i, I should say that part of my Part of my background is, is as an academic. So, uh, you know, I ran um, universities uh, for part of my career. And, and one of the things that we all always talked about in the university environment is what we call active learning. How do you learn by actually doing? And, and being able to build environments for active learning um, for children happens through play. It happens through engaging in your, in your natural environment. And so, you know, the, the, the lessons from cognitive science have, have taught us that in order for children to learn most authentically, we need to have environments that actually support that. And, and I think that many municipalities are understanding this now. Um, you know, cities like Rochester, New York have their, um, their, their you know, uh, right to play um, uh, charters in, in their cities. And, and the fact that these municipalities are really thinking about how children engage in an environment that's supportive of their learning, um, I think is just so incredibly important. And, and Sarah and, and her team really have, uh, you know, put the meat on the bones for these uh, municipalities and shown them um, how they can use many different strategies um, to be able to use outdoor learning and play way of supporting the academic environment as a way of strengthening what happens in the classroom. And I think it's, it's just a, it's a perfect duality. It brings together the way that children learn authentically. And I think that it's a support, a really strong support for the, for the academic environment. And to Sarah? Yeah, I will, I will build off of that. Yeah. And I think maybe even take, um, 
take kind of one step to the back in, in terms of our partnership, because I think it's really important to understand that in the United States and the, the way the National League of Cities has built up its reputation over many, many years. I mean, municipalities look to them for guidance on what really makes a resilient, healthy, vibrant community. And so we had all the messaging, but, the, but it mattered who the messenger was. I mean, the Children of Nature Network can stand out here all day long and say, hey, connecting your kids to nature is good for them. And like, what do they expect us to say? Like, give us a break. The National League of Cities is, a, is, a, is an authority on what makes a good city, period irrespective of kind of the, the specific strategy, right? And so for them to step forward and say, you know what, there's this thing that we've kind of missed. Like, you know, like many of us, as you described, Robert, I, I, I have not met one leader in my entire life that's of kind of my generation-ish and, you know, 10 plus, 10 minus, that didn't have, that, that the outdoors, in some way, shape or form wasn't part of their formation as a child and a, a really critical part of, you know, their, you know, um, you know, forming those social bonds, you know, learning leadership skills informally, finding their love of learning, all those kinds of things. So I think, you know, for the Children and Nature Network, there was a, a really specific strategy in place here to see if we could partner up with somebody who wasn't a nature organization, who was just about, you know, effective, you know, communities <laughs> and, and start to weave nature connection into that narrative. And, um, you know, I think we're still in that process, but I would say that I think that it has been effective in terms of getting that message out there in a way where adoption is starting to happen. In, in a relatively speaking short period of time. Um, so yeah, I just, that from, from our perspective, you know, this partnership has, you know, catapulted the conversation in a way that we never could have done on our own. Yeah, and just to highlight to our listeners, it's um, like a non-government organization, the National League of Cities as well. Yes. And so, Obviously, you've you've started to implement these things. People are acting on it because the evidence is there. People implementing their childhood charters and rights to play, um, changing policy. There has been some great announcements um, within the vice president Harris announcing the um, using the National League of Cities to implement the rescue plan as well. So. What's some examples of changes you've seen in cities with the assistance of both the Children and Nature Network and the National League of Cities? Well, I'll just give a couple, you know, right off the top. There's, when we look at children's outdoor bills, bills of rights, there's yeah. been uh, cities like San Francisco, California, Austin, Texas, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah. Um, the, the city that I was talking about earlier, Rochester, New York, they um, not only developed the um, Children's Bill of Rights, but but it was also adopted by the city council, and they've announced plans for an urban nature center. So there are some cities that are really taking a leadership role and uh, really thinking about how um, how they really engage this and, and integrate it with um, a city development strategy. And that, that's so interesting because from a 
gig play level. It was the institutionalization of public play spaces came from New York. It was like, all right, let's get the the swing, the seesaw, the sandpit, the slide, put that in, there's play, we're done, take out everything else. But now you're getting New York that's going back, complete back the other way and leading. It's really exciting. And, you know, it's uh, it's an opportunity to, to actually provide some models there for other cities. Um, and I think that we have some great exemplars that are that are taking real leadership roles. And, and what's exciting about it is that um, as we build momentum, um, Sarah and her group, um, they have uh, a methodology in working with cities that allows for a city to, to not just replicate the work, but to do the work in a way that um, has a sense of place. Uh, and it's so important that, you know, when you're, when you're working with these municipalities that you, it's, it's informed by where they are and who they are and what their background is, and that these spaces um, engage in a learning experience that teaches children about where they are and who they are. Yeah. And like, it sounds to me, it's like not rolling out that cookie cutter solution and honoring those communities to take charge. So Sarah, what's some of those strategies you use to, to honor these individual cities and, and essentially hand the importance over to them? I mean, I think that, you know, with, in partnership with the, with the National League of Cities team, I mean, we really developed a process where we work with city leaders to say, okay, you know, who, what does in, what does equitable access to nature look like in your community? Or another way of asking that is who doesn't have access? and start to look at that and say, okay, well, what are those barriers? And, and let's go talk to those communities and ask them about that. Um, let's, let's um, you know, I, we've, we've yet to find community members who say that they don't want, you know, a park for their children, that they don't want gardens where they can grow fresh food, that they don't want, they don't want these things, you know, they do. They, and, and, and it's just a matter of, of, of people being able to articulate you know, in their particular community, what does that look like? Um, what kinds of amenities might they like in those spaces? And really, I think it's 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 the kind of the combination of that that grassroots. I mean, we fully believe that that residents know their own communities best, and they they have ideas and solutions. Um, and sometimes they need support in framing that, in in being able to to share that with municipal with their you know with their municipal leaders and and to bring that partnership together and I feel like you know we really need both a, a, a grassroots and a grass tops coming together to really make really good decisions and to ensure that those you know that that when the decision you know if, if a strategy is implemented you know there have to be resources that you know, that, that, that support that. There have to be policies that support that. And, you know, grassroots leaders can't do that by themselves. You know, that's what governments are for. <laughs> and, you know, working to create a bigger vision and, and ensure that there's, that there are the, the resources around that to ensure that, that the solutions are durable and not just kind of a, a flash in the pan. And so that's really, um, you know, Kind of a long way of describing a process, but it, you know, we we ask questions and guide municipal leaders and their and their local partners through 
you know, a design process really. Um, and, and then they, and they, they come up with the solutions. We certainly do provide examples for them. Uh, a big part of what we do is, um, you know, we, these cities work in cohorts. Um, and there's a lot of peer learning and sharing and they, you know, they can call each other. Hey, you know, the mayor of Houston, I know you all, you know, we're using flood recovery dollars to get green schoolyards in. How did you do that? You know, um, during COVID, we had a whole, you know, um, Google sheet, I think is what it was. It wasn't anything terribly sophisticated, but people were sharing ideas about how they were handling, you know, park openings and closures and how they were communicating about that. And there was, you know, information sharing back and forth and, and providing that opportunity for folks to learn from each other is huge. And for folks to not feel like they're alone, you know, they're part of a, of a true network and they're part of a learning community. Um, so those have been some of the strategies that we've used that, you know, really are very effective. I will also say, you know, we do, we, we pass through dollars to cities. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the way I tend like to think about it is that there's private investment for, you know, three to five years, somewhere in there is probably the sweet spot where then, you know, cities themselves are able to start changing resource flows and taking on that expense themselves and building into capital budgets and building into, you know, their own planning, uh, you know, putting staff members on their own payrolls, um, leveraging local dollars for implementation. But that, you know, that influx of money so that there are people sitting at that city yeah. whose job it is to think about this matters. <laughs> um, and to think that people are gonna do it out of the goodness of their heart, they might want to, but if they if their if their paycheck is is paying them to do something else, that's what they're gonna do. Yeah, exactly. And a theme I hear just time and time again through our brief chat so far is that there, there's the theme of top down and bottom up continuously. It's not like the one stop shop and like this is how you do it. And it's not a matter of fixing. It's not going into community and saying, hey, you're broken. It's saying you matter. And that's where the big shift comes. I think you do it so brilliantly and respectfully. And um, that might lead into um, Robert. There's with the opportunity of economics, that plays into opportunity zones that you've worked on as well. So if you, um, I just find it very interesting. We don't have opportunity zoning in Australia. Could you just give a brief summary <laughs> of that? Because when I heard it, I was like, oh, I've got to find out about this. Sure. Yeah. Opportunity zones are, it's actually a, a, a federal um, program um, where uh, essentially we have, to, we have what we call census tracts. These are um, small subsections of a city or a municipality. Um, and and the, the program is, is organized around what they call a qualified census tracts. In other words, a census tract that, census tract that is showing need. Um, often these are communities that have been underinvested or historically disinvested. And um, what opportunity zones do is actually bring um, a framework for reinvestment in some of these communities, both bringing together uh, federal dollars and private dollars into some of that work. And so um, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a strategy that can be leveraged 
um, especially when we're having these conversations about equity and how do we um, how do we focus on parts of of our communities that have not um, received the financial investment needed in order to really um, provide for all of their citizens. Yeah, and you're you're not assessing economic value all the time, though. Is it a dignity index? A dignity economy. Economy, yeah. dignity so, economy, that's yeah. right, yeah. So, you know, prior to this role with the National League of Cities, I was the chief administrative officer for the city of Jackson, Mississippi. Mm. And essentially, the, the CAO is, is, uh, sits next to the mayor, and he's the person that that the mayor tells what to do <laughs> is the person that actually has to run the city and make sure that the trains run on time. And um, uh, as the mayor, the, the mayor of, of Jackson, Shokwe Lumumba, as he was taking office, we sat down and we started to talk about models, economic models that we've seen in cities across the US and across the world, really. And um, what we said is that you can look in many cities and find what we called economic models of humiliation. So when you see blight and crime and lack of opportunity, poor educational outcomes, et cetera, essentially you're looking at economic models that are focused on the humiliation of communities. Uh, And what we said was that we wanted to essentially flip that on its head and create an economic model where we were investing in the inherent dignity of every citizen in the city. And so what that meant for us was that we had to be really intentional about um, exactly what Sarah is talking about. How do we sit down and and map out where inequities are in our community? How do we use that as data to think about how we flow investments into communities that have not historically had it? And how do we use this as an environment to make sure that we are supporting families in a way that actually supports their growth. Um, It's so important for children to have an environment where when we talk about equity, it's not about making sure that everybody has the same thing, but it's making sure that children have the necessary opportunity that that they need in order to be able to have a level of access that is that's common. And so that means that you might have to do more in one community than you do in the next. But it's about trying to bring everybody to the to the same starting line together. Seems like you've got the theory in the background and why this relationship between you both is so impactful is in my observation I see so much theory and great intention and policy. But when it comes into hitting the ground and actually implementing it and handing it over to community, that's a shortfall. So I think a, a tangible representation of this is the fact that you have the Outdoor Bill of Rights as something um, you've implemented collectively. Mm-hmm. And we as a mission, and um, I'm a part of the Australian Institute of Play, and one of our missions is to try to get this Bill of Rights into and petition government to implement that. So what's your tips what's your advice and wisdom around implementing these bill of rights and how did you go about it well i think that i'll i'll, I'll start and then i'll let sarah sarah jump in that this this piece around um engaging the community i think is incredibly important and um you know when sarah talks about the grassroots and the grass tops 
um, we used to talk about astroturf, <laughs> which is artificial grass, right? <laughs> but it's, um, you know, essentially it's, it's grassroots, but it's very organized and it has a way of being able to get all of those authentic voices into the conversation, um, but do it in a way that is actually supportive of the municipality and, and in a way that uh, municipal leaders can uh, authentically engage in the same conversation. Um, so many times we have um, conversations where we're talking past each other. And um, it's really important when you have um, someone like the Children in Nature Net Network to be able to structure the conversation in such a way that people are actually talking to each other about solutions and how those solutions can actually benefit all of the community. Thanks, Robert. That's really well put. And I, um... You know, one of the things that I'll say about the um, Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights or COBARS, is what we call it for shorthand, but I have to say I wasn't a huge fan of them at first because I was thinking, you know, okay, so a mayor can go in there and, you know, have a photo op and point to a thing and check that box and move on and not do anything. And so, and, and I think that there is a danger with that, but I think what we have been seeing with, um, with these efforts, particularly at the local level, that if, if you really are, if, if the COBARs are being used in galvanizing residents and partners um, to come together to, you know, to bring about the programs, policies, fundings, activities, needed you know to ensure equity and access to nature it can be used as a platform but you want to make sure that you know it's being used as an organizing tool and not an end in of itself if that makes sense and then you know i thought it might be helpful for for me to share um our our teams uh, and you know truly is you know the the folks on robert's team and the folks on my team that work together i mean they really are working together um, hand in glove every day on these issues. So they, they have come up with um, kind of a list of lessons learned from um, COBARs from around the country that I thought might be helpful to share with your listeners. Um, the first thing it, that they suggested is that including more co-signers for greater impact. So, you know, a city government-led COBAR can be more impactful if they include school districts and county health departments, federal land agencies, and, you know, grassroots partners. So, like, to think broader about, like, getting that, you know, again, kind of to that, that theme I was talking about, galvanizing interests. And, and the same would be true if it's a grassroots-led thing. They should be looking to get their city government involved, you know, just thinking about who are all the interested parties in this and get them to sign on. Um, using the COBOR as a media opportunity um, to tie in other related goals and activities in the city. You know, Baltimore, uh, Maryland, uh, Mayor Young there signed Baltimore's COBOR at an event that was celebrating uh, Baltimore Wildlife Week. And it served as a, you know, a media opportunity while accomplishing another city goal. Um, a third recommendation or, you know, thing that we've seen that's been successful is, um, you know, kind of creating a one-two punch by launching COBOR with another Nature Connection project. So, for example, in Austin, Texas, the COBOR was a collaboration between various city agencies, the local school district, and it, was a long, it, and it was launched alongside a green schoolyards um, project uh, to prove 
that the partners were serious about making connections uh, to nature a reality. So it was like, you know, here's this uh, this bill of rights, but here's an example of what we're actually doing uh, to make yeah. it a reality. Um, you know, I think, you know, connecting COBOR rights with existing children's programming and in partnerships that with agencies that have trusted relationships with children and families. Really important. Um, Salt Lake City engaged a trusted city agency that already had connections with local kids and their families, and it allowed the city to create a tangible program with funding attached. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, really this question of equity, you know, so um, for example, San Francisco and Austin use their equity zone mapping to determine where children are lacking access to their outdoor rights and need further resources and programs in order for those rights to be fulfilled. So um, those are just some examples that we have seen and just tips that we would offer for folks and hopefully in Australia to pick this up and, and, and make these kinds of things happen as well. hundred percent. There's things in there that I can instantly imagine implementing and taking action on. So personally, in addition to our listeners, thank you for those action points. Um, what I'm hearing there is that you, you've really managed to move beyond the token, the handshake, the donation. You know, I was talking to a client of a um, therapy center recently and they called us in they've got this beautiful nature zone and then the they were having a sponsor sponsor money to renovate the zone to offer some more therapy for children and i was like this is brilliant look at all this nature and they said no we can't we're not going to do that because the sponsor wants to have a cubby with something they can put a plaque on and initially they wanted to give toys so they could shake shake they could get some photos (laughs) <laughs> that's a type of thing you've you've seemed to move past um i know it's probably obvious and it states it in the name but you've got the bill it's a bill of rights but when you're approaching these communities are you saying this is a right or is it a um, an act of well-being or is it um and you're solving a equity challenge like what angle do you approach these councils with I think it's all of the above. I mean, you know, it, it's it 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 checks all of those boxes, yeah. and um, uh, I think that um, you know, when when you're having a conversation with a municipality, um, there is a there is a context that that these conversations are always a part of, and um, I think you, there is a. You know, you gave three great front doors that we can yeah. go into that conversation with. I think there might be a couple other side doors that we can use to to enter into that conversation. But it's um, sorry to jump in. Well, side I, doors. I, I, I think that it, well, you know, there's there there are side doors around um, when we think of uh, how, for example, a, a city might think of economic development, or if they're thinking of. Um, uh, some some municipal leaders are very much focused on the economics of their of their city and they want to be able to show something that bringing a new company into town is going to is going to be a, a highlight for them right they might not necessarily be thinking directly of the children or equity or on any some of these other concerns but it's a side door for us to get into that conversation right and we come in through that way um 
because we've got to be able to start the conversation first. But then the goal is that we're driving them towards the outcomes that we yeah. want to be able to see. The loving Trojan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would say education is another one. And, mm -hmm. you know, the it was interesting, Lucas, I, you made an inference that I, I'd like to just check out that the idea of moving to green schoolyards and outdoor learning is somehow a move away from academics. And what, what our, the research that we look at shows is that children who have access to regular outdoor learning actually have higher graduation rates, 100%. better attendance, better um, engagement in school. So it's not, um, it's not necessarily a turn away from academics, but, um, you know, a, a way that uh, particularly we, you know, the research is very strong in showing that the benefits of outdoor learning are proportionally greater for those students with, um, you know, with other uh, barriers to graduation. Yeah. And I don't know, it's interesting, Robert, I would, something that you said earlier makes me wonder if there's a connection to this, because I think about, if you picture in your mind, you know, a school that is surrounded with blacktop and cars, and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there's a rusty old basketball hoop out there and some four square lines, and that was my, my, uh, my school, um, and you kind of share, you share the, the playground with the, with the, with, with cars and whatnot versus a school where, you know, there are, you know, beautiful places to play and maybe gardens mm -hmm. and other things. How does that child feel about that, their community's investment in them? And I do think that those spaces where that the physical environment is attended to as supportive of the growth and development and learning of children, it's, it is connected to that sense of, of, a, of a child's feeling of, of worth. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think that that's something that we just kind of think of the playground as like a maintenance problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to, you know, uh, something that supports the healthy development of our children. Yeah. And we see that all the time. Um, a friend of mine, Steve Kanowski, he's um, at the start of COVID, he implemented um, nature play and loose parts play. Um, and it's uh, 60, I think it's about 60% of the school are in the category of at risk, highest at risk <clears throat> children. And mm -hmm. he actually kept his school open during lockdown because it was better for the children to be there than not. Um, he's yep. seen crazy impacts. Like um, he had a 70% drop in violent incidents mm -hmm. in one year. He's 25% mm -hmm. um, of those children were getting C's and A's within one year, 60%. Yep. And it's yep. time, time again, because they've got this functional, like, and it can't be taken away as punishment. And it's saying, no, you matter. This is yours. This is your ownership. And then all, and that's trickled onto the community. So when you're implementing in your grassroots, that, kind of like the you matter mm -hmm. action <laughs> is these green yards so what effect have you observed within the wider community moving beyond the school that these um, green playgrounds have had i think that when you when you add community um into the work and as sarah was saying um 
community as a part of the of the development process. Um, community, the, the voice of the community is kind of ownership that happens um, where um, community members are not renters um, of their of their communities. They are true owners. And um, uh, many times you'll, you'll find, I know in Jackson, um, there were all kinds of community events that would happen in playgrounds, in, in parks, in, in these spaces, because there was a greater sense of ownership of what that was. And when we talk about um, connections to uh, other maladies in community like crime and, and some of these other things, um, there, was a, there was an actual engagement in the community to ensure that these places were safe zones for children. And um, they wouldn't allow um, any of those uh, negative forces to come into that space. And so that, that kind of ownership that comes with engaging people and actually hearing their voice and allowing their voice to be resonant and to uh, manifest itself into a place that is supportive of children. Um, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's the way that you, that you build authentic communities that people really care about. I couldn't agree more, Robert. And I would just add to that, that, um, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, geez, you know, if we open up this playground, it won't be safe for children, right? Um, but if when you go through the process, and we've seen this over and over again, of this authentic community engagement and people, as you say, like they see their ideas like, wow, there's that garden that I wanted or there's that new soccer field or whatever it is like, you know, that, that people see that they're being, you know, they're being listened to. They actually have eyeballs on that space. And what they actually find is that crime goes down, even though it's the, the school officials every time will say, we're afraid if we take that chain link fence and the barbed wire off that, you know, the, the bad element's going to come in. It's like, no, it's that barbed wire that sends a signal that this is some kind of shady place. You know, if there's children and families and dogs and, you know, folks, you know, in these spaces, um, folks aren't going to be, you know, doing bad stuff. So, um, and, you know, we also really see there's so many benefits, you know, there's those community outcomes, there's the learning outcomes we talked about. We see health and wellness outcomes, you know, from beneficial play, from uh, increased physical activity. One of the big things that the research shows us is reduced stress, uh, that children, you know, their, their stress level goes down and their, their overall mental health improves. And then, you know, the thing we haven't talked much about are environmental outcomes. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're putting green infrastructure in these spaces, we know that it, at least in the United States, I don't know if this is true in Australia, the public schools are one of the top three landholders in most communities. If you were putting green infrastructure, I mean, that can be game changing in terms of water management in our communities. Um, and, and then what you plant there, if there's native plantings and trees, um, you know, there's, uh, it supports, you know, wildlife habitat, uh, urban heat island. And then, you know, because that's, uh, you know, that's our schools, that's where the children go we're improving environmental literacy. So it's kind of this multi-solving, like this space that we think of as a school ground has so many intersections with, um, you know, with, you know, learning outcomes, health and wellness, community and environment. So it's, uh, it's one that we're excited about. We really hope it will be, you know, taken up at scale. 100%. And what I love about it, it sees tangible representations to the 
to the programs that you're all the hard work you're doing behind the scenes that these communities won't necessarily see. And then you can come and go, here's a deliverable that's yours. And I'm assuming that's a really proactive way to overcome the stigma within communities. I know in Australia we have stigma around certain suburbs and areas as the biggest determinant of education and children's outdoor play is stigma. It's where homeless people are, where there's high theft, there's crime. So the stigma around the negative connotation more so to suburbs. And is there any other strategies that you implement to overcome that? Robert, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say, but I think that, you know, it's going to sound a little bit like a broken record here in that, you know, it really is all about, you know, engaging with that local community that, that lives in those spaces, you know, listening to them, treating them with dignity and respect, um, you know, uh, creating, you know, shared visions for what these outdoor spaces can be. And, um, and talk, I mean, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes it's just talking through what those concerns are and like, you know, collectively brainstorming around how we can mitigate the concerns that folks might have. And, you know, people really, I mean, I'm always just amazed with the, you know, when people are given a voice, a platform, a place to envision, um, you know, particularly a better life for their children. (laughs) It's amazing what they'll come up with, you know, it's like, it's, um, and ideas that can really, you know, that aren't necessarily that hard to implement. Um, And it's, you know, and it's important to bring, you know, various stakeholders together in that conversation. I mean, that's, and, and, and there's an education process that goes along with it, I think. And examples, you know, it always helps to show, well, okay, well, meet these people here that did it in Chicago or these people here that did it in in, uh, Rochester, New York or Houston, Texas. You know, it helps to have examples of and and real people that have gone through the process and made it work. And Lucas, just to add on to what Sarah was saying, uh, when you talk about that stigma, it sounds very much um, like what the mayor and I were articulating around this um, model of humiliation, right? Um, and, and really kind of um, thinking that there are some areas that um, almost don't deserve investment, right? And, and how, do we, how do we rethink that in a way that we say that, you know, every, every part of our community deserves investment and um, children deserve opportunity. And opportunity happens when you have an environment that actually supports your learning, when it supports your growth. Um, the, the superintendent of, of Jackson, Mississippi and I made it a point to have uh, a, a monthly meeting. We'd get together for dinner once a month. And um, he would always talk about socio-emotional learning and how we have to focus our academic environments, not just on what's happening in the classroom, but it has to really involve what happens around the classroom. And that's really what the community is. And so it's, it's, it's really thinking about how we bring together learning environments that are fully supportive of children and fully supportive of families, irrespective of their zip code, irrespective of where they live, irrespective of who your parents are. It really means that every child deserves these opportunities. Yeah. 
I love that as an over over theme phrase right there, creating environments of opportunity for mm-hmm. all. I've had a very sledgehammer experience recently where I went to do a consult for uh, early childhood education center in a lower socioeconomic area. And as I walked through, I said, this environment would not be acceptable in the suburb where I was this morning. It'd be shut down. They'd be like, no, you can't do this. Meanwhile, the depart- the governing department were more concerned about a child climbing the fence to get out of this lower socioeconomic concrete astroturf jungle than they were about what the actual children were doing. Like, And it's just such a summary and such an example of what we're facing, not just in individual centres, but we're seeing this time and time again over over cities. And that's what I love about what you're doing in your collaboration. You're not just acting on the individual city. You guys are acting on the whole city and overcoming that. And what pops to mind is you're creating this ecological web of care, compassion, consistency, where everything can grow by itself, but they're a part of this bigger living organism that's it's everyone's best interest to thrive. You don't have to you don't have to just copy someone grow in your way, but that like as e- easy as a Google Doc can do that, that everyone can share. So what what most excites you that's happening in this collaboration and at the moment? I think what really excites me is um, the opportunities that lay in front of us. Um, we have a we have a, a fairly solid um, uh, infrastructure underneath of us, and we have teams that are are really fully integrated. Um, when I when I started this position, one of the first meetings that I had was with uh, Sarah's team and my team. And um, as a newcomer, it was hard for me to differentiate who was working for who, <laughs> which was really exciting because it's just this wonderful collaboration. And um, uh, it's, it's bringing resources to cities that um, were not there before, but doing it in a way that is so supportive and caring and, and uh, uh, wholesome essentially for, for communities. And so um, I think that there are very um, bright futures in the, in the work that we're doing together. And um, I'm just so excited about having her partnership and the partnership of the Children in Nature Network and, and really thinking about how we are um, being intentional about this work. 100%. Appreciate that, Robert. And I, it is true about about our about our teams. It's a, it's I've been a part of a lot of you know nonprofit um, partnerships, and I've never been uh, a part of one that's quite like this, where you know truly we each bring different strengths to the partnership, and so the team actually functions you know as a as a whole um, kind of a Venn diagram between our two organizations. Um, for me, what's most exciting, um, I think, you know, really over the last seven years, as Robert was pointing out, we've, we've really, um, I think we've established a baseline and a, and a solid foundation for this work. And what, where I see us heading now is really towards being able to point to um, models that work, that can be replicated, that can start to show 
um, uh, you know, these uh, strategies being implemented at scale and that where we can see that return on investment for, you know, uh, private dollars going in to really establish uh, strong processes and then, you know, bringing along government and, and other private dollars to, to really support long-term um, implementation and um, sustainability. So I just think it's, um, it's an exciting time. I think, you know, the fact, I mean, the one thing, I mean, COVID taught us a lot of things, um, but, you know, one thing it did teach us is that we're capable of changing very quickly. 100%. And I think that, that that's, um, and I think there's still an openness right now to trying new things. And so, you know, I'm just excited that this partnership is in place and has been working and is ready to take, um, you know, to, to really leverage this moment. We need to supply an environment of opportunity, but it, think, it seems like you and your collaboration is thriving in this bigger environment of opportunity at the same time. And what pops to mind is play as important as trains. It's like not one or the other. They're, they're equally important and held in the same esteem. So I think that's what you're doing well, so well. And it's been so great to chat to you today. Um, and I've got to thank you, like going to the Children and Nature Network conference in the States when we could fly was a real, real eye opener to like creating a really supportive culture and collaboration. And it, and it's gone from all the way down. It's evident in your collaboration, but it's also evident within conversations I've had with participants of conferences and things and going all the way from grassroots top to bottom, side to side. And thank you for creating and giving opportunity to so many children. Well, join us in May of 2022 in Atlanta, Lucas. We're having our international conference. We're so excited to gather people in person again. So I hope you'll join us. I'll definitely be there again. And I look forward to it. So thank you so much once again. Thanks for joining us on the Play It Forward Worthy podcast. Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. That is collaboration and purpose in action. I hope you're feeling as inspired as I am right now and I look forward to you joining us again soon on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. <laughs>